Welcome to Witness, a ministry of Covenant Presbyterian Church in Jackson, Mississippi. Join us in person for worship each Sunday at 9.30 a.m. For more information about Covenant, including discipleship and mission opportunities, visit us at www.covenantpresjackson.org. In the beginning, there was God, only God, the almighty, infinite, eternal, triune God, one God, who exists in three persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And it pleased this one God to create. There was nothing. And God said, God spoke into the nothing. At the sound of his voice, creation came to be. The heavens, the earth, the sea, and everything in them. God formed man out of the dust of the ground. He breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. God planted a garden in Eden and placed the man there to work it, keep it. And out of the man, God formed woman. And he gifted them one another. Well, at the end of chapter two, everything was good, very good. The end of chapter two is a beautiful beginning. But it could also be a happily ever after end. At the end of chapter two, you can visualize a stunning sunset accompanied by beautiful music, strings, a symphony, closing credits. But then comes chapter three. Chapter three of Genesis strikes like the sequel you wish was never made. Chapter three introduces storm clouds on the horizon of the sunset, dissonance within the symphony. Storm clouds that grow darker and closer, dissonance that grows louder and stronger, slowly drowning out the beauty. In chapter three, the serpent enters. Although not named, this is the adversary. Satan in the Old Testament, Diabolos, devil in the New Testament. No name is given here, but the serpent's character is described. Crafty, cunning, shrewd. More than any other creature God had made. Don't miss that. The serpent was made like everything else created by God. This is not an adversary equal to God. Well, the serpent enters and the serpent speaks. The the serpent tempts through asking a simple question. Now, Now notice the adversary does not appear in flame and smoke, threatening, cruel, malevolent, like something out of a horror movie where you know that's the villain. No, he just asks the woman a question. A seemingly harmless question, a question no less about God. Did God actually say? It seems the serpent simply wants to start a conversation about God, begin a dialogue about God. The serpent doesn't question the existence of God. The serpent doesn't question faith in God. The the serpent's question is about God's Word, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? 
Now, this simple, seemingly harmless question is actually an attack. It's a subtle attack, an ingenious attack. And here's how. Because the serpent twists God's word. In his question to Eve, he twists God's word. Listen again to the word that God spoke to the man when he placed him in the garden. This is from Genesis chapter 2, verse 16 and 17. The Lord said this, You may surely eat of every tree in the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. God said you can eat of every tree, every tree except one. God granted permission. God granted freedom. God provided a bounty with one single prohibition. Again, the serpent asked, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree? In his question, the serpent shifts the focus from permission and freedom, which God gives, eat of any tree, to prohibition. You shall not eat of any tree. And he does so to sow seeds of doubt in Eve's heart so that she might begin to slowly question. Question God's word. Did he really say? that she might question God's goodness. Why would God say no? Well, Eve simply answers the serpent's question by repeating God's command, but Eve adds to it. She exaggerates it. She says, we can eat of any tree, but if we touch the one tree, we will die. Notice the shift. God said, if you eat of the tree, Eve said, if we touch the tree, we die. Now, perhaps seeing an opening through Eve's exaggeration, the serpent moves from question to assertion, from subtle attack to a full frontal assault. The serpent then says, you won't surely die. God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Well, this time the serpent contradicts God's word, refutes God's word. He also implies that God is actually withholding from them a gift, a blessing, a good. Again, the serpent wishes to sow seeds of doubt in Eve's heart so that she might question God's truthfulness, question God's goodness, that she might move from a place of trust to distrust, a place of belief, to unbelief, and then sin. Well, the serpent also tempts her. Tempts her to go beyond the limits set by God, to be more than she is, more than she was created to be, namely to be like God, knowing good and evil. Well, this phrase, knowing good and evil, is shorthand for all moral knowledge. And from that knowledge comes the capacity to make moral judgments. In other words, knowing good and evil represents the wisdom to decide good and evil, to determine absolutely what is right and what is wrong. But this knowledge, this wisdom, is something only an infinite, almighty, all-knowing God can have. And as finite created beings, we can only have such knowledge as God reveals it to us through his word, 
the serpent tempts Eve to be more than she is. And the serpent is still at work today. He still roams. The adversary still tempts. And his tactics have not changed very much from the beginning. He doesn't come to you in fire and smoke, threatening, cruel, malevolent, like something out of a horror movie. No, the tempter is crafty and cunning and subtle. He desires to sow seeds of doubt in your heart, doubt about God's word, doubt about God's goodness, to move you from trust to distrust, belief to unbelief. He still questions, did God actually say? Which is why, church, you must read God's word, know God's word, study God's word. Satan knows it too. And he will twist it and he will misuse it and he will refute it to move you from trust to distrust. Well, like Eve, he will also tempt you to go beyond the limits to be like God, where you shift from his will, being under his will, following his will to your own will, where you determine good and evil, right and wrong in your life, in your world. Well, the conversation stops. The serpent speaks no more. And he allows time for the poison to begin to work in Eve's heart, for the questions to grow, for the doubt to grow. And then she sees it. The forbidden tree, the forbidden fruit. Now, perhaps she had passed by it numerous times and never thought twice about it, never thought once about it. But now that the serpent has spoken, She questions. She doubts. And her eyes linger on the tree. Her eyes linger on the fruit of that tree. And she saw that it was good, that it was pleasing, that it was delightful, that it was desirable. And she took and she ate. Now, sin always desires company. And so she gave some to the man. She gave some to her husband, Adam. Adam has been present the entire time that the serpent speaks to the woman when he says, you, it's plural, as in you all. Adam has been present, watching, listening, silent, passive, saying nothing. Doing nothing. I mean, he could have at any point grabbed a stick and beat the servant away. At any point, he could have stopped Eve from taking that fruit. But instead, Adam watches. And then he ate. And everything changed. In an instant. 
everything changed. Not, not that anything sensational happened. I mean, the earth did not open beneath them to swallow them up. Lightning did not strike them from above and kill them instantly, but everything changed. This act of disobedience, this act of unbelief, this act of rebellion, this act of pride is the first sin. The fall. And the effects were cosmic. The effects were eternal. And you, you witness the effects around you every day. You experience the effects in your life, in your heart, every day. And instead of a, a good, a very good world of peace, joy, and life, and perfect fellowship with God, it's a broken world, a dissonant world full of sin within you and around you. And when they, when they ate the fruit, Adam and Eve's eyes were open. Their eyes were open. So in the one sense, the serpent told the truth. He said, your eyes will be open. Their eyes were open, but they saw that each other was naked. And prior, prior to this, they were naked and unashamed. But now, after eating the fruit, they feel guilt. After eating the fruit, they feel shame. And they cover themselves, hiding from one another. Sin alienates them from one another. That's one of the effects of sin. Sin alienates us from one another. And now covered Adam and Eve, then hear the sound of God walking in the garden. This was a sound that they normally welcomed, a sound that they looked forward to, a sound that they received with joy. But now they hid. When they heard it, they hid. They no longer desired fellowship with God. They no longer desired communion with God. They no longer desired to be in his presence. They did not want to stand before him. Feeling guilt and shame from sin, feeling exposed and naked, feeling afraid, they hid. They hid among the trees from the one who created them, from the one who provided for them, from the one who blessed them with one another. That's another effect of sin. Sin alienates you from God. And the man and woman hid. And God called to them. God called to them, where are you? Now, he doesn't say, get out here now. Get out here now. I know what you have done. I want to know why. Why did you do it? God doesn't do that. Instead, God asks, where are you? He asks, who told you? He asks, have you eaten? Even in questioning their disobedience, God is gracious. He gives them opportunity, opportunity to come out of hiding, to come before him, to confess the sin, to repent of the sin, to ask for forgiveness, to place themselves under his mercy. But instead of accepting responsibility, instead of confessing the sin, instead of owning their disobedience and rebellion, they both point fingers. They both attempt to shift the blame claim that they're victims. The man blames the woman. 
And in doing so implies that God shares some of the fault. That he says, He says, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit. The woman, on the other hand, points to the serpent. The serpent deceived me, and I ate. So not only does sin alienate, another effect of sin is that sin begets sin. Sin generates more sin. Sin produces more sin. Sin causes more sin. Adam and Eve did not just stop with one sin, and so it has been ever since. Since this first sin, the fall. Sin begets sin. You are conceived in it, born in it. Your heart is inclined to it. Your heart is inclined to disobey God. Follow your own will. Be what you can't, like God. In your relationships, you hide and are hidden from. You hurt and are hurt by. You serve yourself or would rather serve yourself than those around you. You point fingers, you shift the blame, you hide from God, ignore God, deny God. Since in your sin, you would not come out of hiding. God has come to you. Since in your sin, you would not come out of hiding. God has come to you. He walked on this earth in person. In Jesus Christ. And when faced with temptation, when tempted by Satan, Jesus did what Adam and Eve could not do. He didn't doubt. He didn't sin. Jesus did what Adam and Eve could not do. He wasn't silent. He wasn't passive. He upheld God's word. He was faithful. He was obedient. And he did not suffer alienation. He did not suffer separation. And he did it for you. He did it for you. For the Son of God takes upon himself your sin, the sin that you were conceived in, the sin that you commit. The sin you commit when you disobey God's word, when you strive to be like God, the sin that causes you to feel naked, exposed, ashamed, and guilty, the sin that causes you to hide, the sin that you won't take the blame for, Jesus takes all of it on himself as his own. And he steps out of the trees, he steps out of the fig leaves before the Father, exposed by your sin and he willingly receives the penalty for it. Death. The cross. And in return, he gives you his right standing before the Father. Which means this, through Jesus, through Jesus, your sin no longer separates you. Through Jesus, your sin no longer alienates you. Come out of hiding. Come out of the shadows. Come out of the trees. 
Stop pointing fingers. Come before the one who created you. Come before the one who died for you. Come before the one who saved you. Come before the one who desires you to be in fellowship with him, communion with him. Come and leave your fear behind. Leave your guilt behind. Leave your shame behind. Through faith, in this Savior, faith in Jesus, you're no longer alienated. But you are a beloved child. You're a beloved son. A beloved daughter. God is good to you. Rest in his love. Rest in his faithfulness. Trust in the Father. Trust in him with your life. Don't let the seeds of doubt grow in your heart. Don't be tempted to be more than than you are because you are a child of the Father through the death of His Son. And there is no better place that you can be. Thank you for tuning in to Witness, a ministry of Covenant Presbyterian Church in Jackson, Mississippi. 